Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 62. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get into the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Jason Crean. Jason teaches biology at Lyons Township High School in LaGrange, Illinois, and both biology and pre-service science teaching courses at St. Xavier University in Chicago. Jason has been recognized for his excellence in teaching by being awarded the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science Teaching in 2009, the High School Science Teacher of the Year from AAAS in 2010, the Golden Apple Award in 2016, just to name a few of his many awards. Jason serves as past president for the Illinois Science Teachers Association, president of the Illinois Association of Biology Teachers, and sits on the board of directors for the Association of Presidential Awardees in Science Teaching and the College Board's National Science Advisory Panel. Jason began the NGSS Biology Storylining Work Group, in which he has collaborated with other teachers to create a full NGSS-aligned biology course using six coherent storyline units that are now used across the country and internationally. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. I'm, I, I, as I was looking up, looking you up, and um, I almost went. I feel bad saying this now. I so almost went to your workshop at NABT this year. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I felt really bad. It was, it was well attended. We were really happy with uh, the number of people that showed up, um, and some of some of whom have been working with our stuff. Um, so it was great to not only present but get some meaningful feedback. Yeah, and I was talking. To, I talked to, to Kathy Van Hook quite a bit about it. Um, for some reason, she happened to be everywhere I was, but you weren't. Um, <laughs> but we had a lot of overlap uh, at the conference. And I, but uh, yeah, I, I think that you were in the that that nine a.m. Uh, or it was either nine or nine thirty a.m. slot on Saturday morning mm-hmm. when there were yep. like there were like like eleven great sessions. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. That hallway was pretty packed. Yeah, um, it was and great. I. I, it was great, and I um, I ended up going to the Paul Strode talk um, where he worked with the, the people who were looking at um, you know uh, genetics and race and how we may be embedding misconceptions um, in our use of how we use certain language when we we teach genetics that may be um, at worst reinforcing some genetic misconceptions um, about race and. Um, and at bare minimum, we're not even addressing those uh, misconceptions and deconstructing them when we teach genetics. So I, I was very torn and having a long relationship with Paul. I like really wanted to go to that session, but I really wanted to go to yours too. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that we get to sit down and talk so I can get my own private one hour session awesome. here. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was also yelled at my, by my friend, uh, uh, Britt uh, Chaperna, who was with you last summer. Oh, yeah. At a workshop. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So yeah, Brett, she's, she's been a, she, she's been a, an active member of the working group uh, has really helped us. We're, we're putting together a Venus flytrap storyline right now that we're piloting. And uh, she's been instrumental in, in helping us with that. So uh, we just started piloting it, piloting last week. Um, and so we're, we're seeing the fruits of her labor. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And I've known Britt for a couple of years now. We went to a workshop a few summers ago and have stayed connected. So like, I, I don't want to say she yelled at me, but we're close enough friends to say like, when I was say she was like, you really need to go to that workshop. And I was like, I was like, I, I, I felt bad. I was like, I, I don't know that I can. And she's like, no, no, you have to go to it. So uh, 
I think this is this is my mea culpa to to Britt and to myself to make sure I get you on. So this is great. So cool. cool. Uh, um, all right. So and uh, and again, this is um, I, just as a sort of upfront. Uh, this is welcome to. I'm going to say the first person to say this to you, but this year is um, Happy New Year. Um, because this is my first episode of 2019. So, nice. Uh, welcome, to, welcome to 2019. It feel it feels a lot like December or mid December to you. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, uh, as I have my stack of CERs that I need to get yeah. get through before we get off to get to exactly. Uh, Me too. But yeah, and also, but before we get into it, um, and I'm going to put this sort of up front in the first few minutes of the episode, uh, I just want to thank everybody. Speaking of NABT, like uh, my listens uh, at the end of the year, like totally spiked. And I could only thank a whole bunch of biology teachers who asked me questions at NABT and that sort of thing. And we we went, as I said, we had about a five-fold increase in listenership. So you're going to be well heard from this episode, I think. So, Sweet. Yeah, That's I'm ex- great. I'm excited. Congratulations. Yeah, and I'm excited to get your word out because I think what you're doing is pretty, pretty special. Um, so let's... Before we uh, get into the NGSS stuff, which I have like eight thousand questions for for you, um, uh, let's let's start with a question I like to start with everybody. Um, how did you become a science teacher, and specifically, how did you become a high school biology teacher, and, and what led you into sort of the high school biology? Um, so, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I grew up as a kid um, digging up bugs in the backyard, and I had an affinity for animals, um, much to the chagrin of my parents, who never understood that. Um, and so uh, as I got older and I started uh, collecting animals, um, there was something there. And, and I never, my parents were always very supportive, but I never thought I could do anything with it uh, because I had no role models. I had, I, I had nobody um, that really could show me. I had a, uh, I had a cousin who was um, head of chemistry actually at the university that I ended up going to, um, but nothing I didn't see how people were actually using this. And we were at um, our local zoo one day, Brookfield Zoo, who I also work for now. And, the, you know, my parents were like, you know, you could work here. This is a reality. And I think, and I remember exactly where we were in the zoo and everything when they told me that. And so that started my journey. Um, I wanted to be a vet. Um, and then by the time I got midway through my undergrad, I was like, I really don't want to be a vet. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I looked, I was uh, taking organic chemistry of all classes and I was explaining something to someone and someone said, are, are you majoring in education? Because you're really good at this. And so I started um, thinking more and more about that because I was a complete introvert. I, I had trouble talking in front of people um, like I think most, like many of us do. And I knew that I wanted to share my love of science with others. So I took a... Uh, I took an educational psychology course, which was actually a mistake on my schedule. The counselor put the wrong code. And so I showed up to this class thinking it was um, a different psych course, and it was this one. And um, the professor first class was just unreal. And um, from that point on, I was like, I think I could do this. Like, this is exciting. And so, um, yeah, from that point on, I I decided I was going to do that through those weird um those weird connections that I made and uh, never look back. <laughs> all right. So you've got all of this biology background. Um, and so you're, uh, you know, I don't want to call you old, but you're not a spring chicken and rules have changed quite a bit. So were yeah, you just enough I'm to take. I'm feeling it too. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I, I, you know, this is pot calling the kettle black as you're, as I'm sitting here um, <laughs> with my experience uh, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you, you start to, you take the psychology, educational psychology background, and now you go in and you, um, I assume take a, like some methods classes and some other things like that. Yep. Um, 
but you know you continue to learn biology like it's not like you like switched majors and stopped being a biologist you you continued your 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 professional and your educational growth in in biology so how did the track sort of continue for you um after undergrad so i i my major um that i grad my undergrad major is biology with a minor in secondary ed and then um (laughs) I continued on um, after I started teaching immediately. Um, actually, the day after graduation, I had a job interview to teach summer school. So I like right out of the gate, I was teaching. And um, then a few years later, I wanted to pursue my master's. Um, so the, the pro- a friend of mine had started a program. And um, I was like, this sounds interesting because it's technology driven. And I think that's where I need to go. And so I finished that um, master's. Um, a few years after that, through the zoo world, because um, I'm a zoo consultant as well, um, I had met some people who said, you know, this master's program in biology is amazing, and it comes with a graduate certificate in zoo and aquarium science, so it's very application-based, and that just was right up my alley. So um, the the person, the advisor, the professor that runs the program was a bioacoustician. She was a marine-mammalogist, and um, the stuff that I learned was just incredible. It just got me so much more excited about biology, um, learning these different things, and especially things that I could apply to the classroom and, and share with the kids that I knew was going to get them hooked. And so um, I completed that degree. And then I, I don't know why, um, but I decided I wanted my doctorate. And I'm still trying <laughs> to figure out why, but um, I, I went for... I went for my doctorate in teacher leadership because I wanted to do more of the professional development stuff. I'm sure we'll probably talk about it at some point in this podcast um, as far as the story lighting uh, methods that I had been um, taught um, through some 200 hours of training. So um, I completed that. I defended my dissertation, which um, actually looked at changing teacher attitudes towards um, things like the next generation science standards. And then, uh, which was very, very illuminating. And um, I used all of that to to do my um, teacher, the teacher workshops that I do all over the country now. Wow. So that's that's where I'm at today. (laughs) So you did, you did, we went back and forth quite a bit. So you had both the, um, you know, you you continued on with your science side, and then you went back to the education um, to sort of weave those degrees together. So I, I find that to be a fascinating, fascinating journey. Um, I also think it's interesting. I have a lot of people on who tell me, yeah, I really wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I changed the, I think I'm trying to think of if I've ever had somebody who was like d- heading down the pathway of veterinary medicine, um, as opposed to, you know, becoming a, a general practitioner or a surgeon or something like that. I think uh, we tend to, we tend to convert or steal a lot of people who think they're on the doctor track, mm-hmm. uh, for medicine into teaching, but uh, vet is definitely interesting. And I think when we start looking at some of your work, in the classroom and some of your storylining stuff, I think that uh, veterinary background certainly comes up <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. It's a different perspective. So, all right. So we've already teased it a little bit. Um, and uh, I was telling you before we started recording, I, a couple of weeks ago, you emailed me some stuff uh, from the NGS uh, storylining uh, working group, because as teachers, you can get um, some of the assessment stuff if they send an email uh-huh. uh, to you. Uh, so uh, let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, 
and I know we've just scanned over many, many years of your history and background. So uh, feel free to draw back into that educational background. But how did this NGSS Storylining Working Group come into existence? So uh, when Illinois first adopted NGSS, uh, they had launched a program where they recruited 41 teachers, uh, science teachers from across the state uh, to get some in-depth training on how to properly implement NGSS. And it's no secret, and I'm sure most of the people listening are like, yeah, NGSS is not easy. It's not a simple, straightforward thing. And um, so they started this. I was one of the teachers that they had recruited. And we spent a couple of years, um, about 200 hours of training and work um, under Dr. Brian Reiser from Northwestern, um, who is really the international NGSS guru. Um, you know, he, he, he was part of the framework um, and he works for the, you know, he's, he's part of the National Academies. I mean, he's very entrenched in this stuff and he is the go-to. And he's one of the most okay. awesome people I've ever met. I mean, just a genuinely nice guy. And so he was leading us through this and the, they put us into uh, small working groups of four and we were each writing uh, what we, what was supposed to be the model uh, storyline units for our state. So these would be published as models so teachers could see how to implement NGSS through coherent storyline. And um, just before we were done, uh, changes in leadership occurred at the state and our work was, our work disappeared. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so, you know, we were frustrated and, um, you know, things like this happen in government. So we I, I decided I was uh, the president-elect of the Illinois Science Teachers Association. Um, I was vice president of the Illinois Association of Biology Teachers. And I sat down and said, why don't we start one of these groups ourselves um, through this so that we can get teachers to share the same experience that we had? And so um, initially we had five districts, five t teachers from five different, different districts show up. One of them was Kathy Nanhok, who you mentioned earlier. Um, and her and I had met because we volunteered in the genetics lab at the, at the uh, zoo, um, karyotyping and doing some other things. So we had a history already. And um, within six months, the work had caught on. And we had over teachers from over 50 districts that had um, come. And then within the first year, over 100 districts. So there, it, it had caught on very quickly. Um, some teachers were, were working remotely. Some teachers from out of state. Uh, we're actually watching our work through Google Drive to see what we were putting together and inserting things and, and making recommendations. So it was very uh, collaborative, which you can't implement NGSS by yourself. It has to be collaborative. And storylining is very much so. It's very iterative. It's very collaborative. Um, but it is hands down. I never gave my kids enough credit for what they could do until we were storylining. Um so that's basically how it took off. And after we put together the first storyline, which was melanin, um, and that uh, mm -hmm. used albinism as the anchoring phen phenomenon, um, we saw the, we piloted that. We saw the, the positive uh, results of that from our kids. And um, more and more teachers started piloting. And so we decided to start more. Um, I'm an ambassador for HHMI, so we, we were like, you know, a lot of that work that we've done for them and, and that's available at biointeractive.org plays very well into what we're doing. So some of those things we could use is, you know, lesson level phenomenon to engage kids, 
um, but use them differently than how we were doing before. So, you know, less front loading and more kids figuring out. And so um, mm -hmm. we started uh, the Africa storyline, which became um, a lengthy storyline that took up an entire quarter. Um, it's really three smaller storylines mm -hmm. that are woven together, uh, one on lions, one on elephants, and one on plants. Um, and that sounds very simplistic, but the kids are doing all four of the big ideas in life science um, within that. They're woven together like they would be in the real world. Um, and then we approached homeostasis um, and wanted to do homeostasis at every hierarchical level from ecosystems down and uh, use the disappearing sea otter and the HHMI um, support materials for that. And, um, and then it just kind of snowballed into other things um, that we had done uh, previously. So that's how we started the working group. We, we meet twice a month and it's open door. Um, we're all volunteers. We do it because we believe in the work and teachers uh, come because they think it's the most valuable professional development that they have because no one's standing up in front of a room telling us what to do. It's here's what it looks like and here's how we develop it. And we, you know, ideas are bouncing back and forth constantly. And that just makes the work that much stronger. So storylines that you see, though I lead the group, are very much um, a collaborative effort from lots of teachers of different backgrounds with different kids. Um, it's awesome. It's just the synergy is amazing. Yeah. 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 And I, I've been, I've been using, I mentioned to you uh, again, I've been using some of these storylines as, as I work with, work with different populations and um, you know, everyone from AP and I use my honor students, but I have found that the, the storylining approach is super engaging with my alternative program kids um, who struggle through the traditional school day. So I, I sort of start with the premise from them that sort of traditional unit-based mm -hmm. curriculum has never been very successful. Um, so, and I, you know, and I've been working with them for, gosh, about 13 years now. So I want to say like 12, 13 years ago, I think I, I came over into that group to work with those, those students. And I tried to take my sort of traditional college prep biology curriculum in with them. And I think within like, I don't know, seven or eight seconds kind of knew, <laughs> oh, this is stupid. I can't Very do true. this. And so I went to more of a, I went to more of a, what would have been traditionally referred to as sort of a project-based curriculum idea. Um, and so, and I've, it's, it's sort of my sandbox. I've experimented a lot with them. And I took a course through um, Harvard Life Science and the Amgen Biotech Experience Group probably about three years ago in which I learned about the NGSS um, curriculum for the first time. And I had to, as part of the final of that, I had to build my own curriculum module that would be NGSS aligned. So I created my own, which is all about um, matter and energy um, cycling. Um, and so I use like, basically it's, <laughs> I, I call it my one gallon fish tank um, uh, unit, uh, because what we do is we, I have one gallon jars where we put Elodia in them and we uh, eventually add a guppy mm -hmm. in them and we seal them and we don't feed them um, because the, the mm -hmm. guppies can feed off of the Elodia. And as long as you let the Elodia get a few weeks start, they can oxygenate enough the, of the um, environment and they provide enough food for a single less than one inch size guppy. Um, and like literally we set these, we put the fish in on like March 1st and then they're still alive at the end of the school year, <laughs> uh, which the kids don't believe is going to happen. Um, 
And so it's this it's this running storyline. And I do a lot of other labs and other things based off of that, asking questions about, well, what's going on with the matter? What's going on with the energy and, and building it off? So I built this curriculum and I've been and it was exhausting oh, yeah. uh, to build that, <laughs> that curriculum. But what you're but what you're doing is you're you're leading with phenomena and you're leading with questions instead of objectives. Yeah. And. Um, it, you know, it, that's the bane of my existence is seeing the, that objective on the board, which gives away the punchline yeah. before you even have the kids figure something out. And I tell teachers that all the time and administrators don't put the objective on the board, write a question because by human, by human nature, we want to answer that question. When we see a question, we, we, we think about it without even thinking about it. Right. So it's, it's that whole leading them through that process of figuring out that's going to create the self-directed learner. Mm. And that's, our, that should be our goal. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like the way that you you framed it that way because I I guess I've never thought of the objective and the question as being remarkably different because what I I don't put like we're going to work on this, we're going to work on this, we're going to work on this. I I tend to ask questions. Yep. Um uh, and that's 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 what it's all about <laughs> that, or that's what it should be and what it's all about. Um you know, we we tend to want to micromanage and do a checklist of things like okay, I did this. I I taught this today, so this is done. I want my kids to see these things in different contexts throughout the year. Um, the, the one and done and the standalone unit, that is that needs to become fossilized. That's done. That, I'm done with that. I can't go ever go back to that. But it's funny when you say that this works with your alternative kids because those types of kids, like the struggling students that I have, those are the kids who absolutely love this. They get into it. The strugglers now are my upper level kids because they have memorized everything for eight years. And then they come to me as a freshman and they're like, wait, I can't do this anymore. And so they struggle because they want to know exactly what's on the test so they can memorize it and regurgitate it because that has worked for them all these years. And now we're asking them to figure out instead of learn about, you know, and learning about random facts versus figuring out, we know which one is going to push the kids harder. And so they, they struggle. So now there's this whole shift. And, you know, but all of it, regardless of what that struggle is, is going to produce the self-directed learner. That's what we're trying to get to. They want kids figuring out over learning about. Yeah. And wow, you brought up so many great points there. It, it also makes me think, and um, I mentioned before, you know, I went to a misconceptions uh, workshop at NABT. And mm-hmm. one of the big things that happens in in misconceptions, um, and as you were talking about working through NGSS, it, it flashed to me that... Um, when I first started trying to approach NGSS, what I did is I didn't deconstruct the way I build my curriculum. I just tried to layer on these NGSS ideas onto my existing curriculum. The same thing that we do when we don't break down misconceptions about a concept with our students and we just layer new facts on without ever deconstructing their understanding. Um, and rather than creating something that's coherent and accurate we create this hodgepodge that is sort of a it's sort of a blend in between and it sounds to me from what you've done is that you basically said we're not going to try to wedge in ngss practices and disciplinary core ideas into existing curriculum because that can't be done no we need we need to have a wholly new approach and we need to build it from the ground up that's Um, absolutely correct yeah 
So, uh, so a couple of, and I mentioned Britt earlier, one of the things that Britt and I have talked about is because I've been starting to work towards this with my AP students mm -hmm. of trying to create storylines there. So I will now ask you, um, should, shouldn't we be doing this for AP? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have an AP biology storylining working group? To do the same thing? <laughs> I get that question a lot because there's teachers who are just clamoring for it because they have seen that you spend a lot less time getting kids to understand these concepts through storylining because it's in context. And they think that they can save time in AP bio, which is always crunch time uh, to get to that test. And I would say emphatically, yes. Um, I'm, I'm chair, I'm, I'm co-chair of the pre-AP biology committee for the college board. And that's one the, from the get go. It was always about stories, you know, like how can we do, case study type units instead of this checklist of standalone things like we're going to talk about cells here and, and DNA here and evolution here. How can we weave those together more um, effectively? And um, I get questions all the time, like all oh, these storylines can't, you know, they, they can't possibly prepare them for AP or college or anything like that. They absolutely do. They prepare them more than anything else can because um, anybody can sit in the lecture hall and listen. But when it comes to critical thinking and figuring problems out, that's where across the board, every college professor I've talked to, um, you know, some of the reports that have come out um, say, you know, th this is what's lacking. Even leaving college is that critical thinking piece. And so um, we can we can absolutely do this in AP um, where the and some teachers are actually using some of the storylines in AP to capture things. And then inserting um, some of the other concepts that uh, may work well um, according to the framework, the AP framework. Yeah, and it almost looks like that the 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 sample curriculum that they put out when they put out the the revision of the AP, it was a dramatic shift from you know ten or twelve or whatever sort of march through Campbell yes. units to people doing uh, like four or six units through the year or, and I remember thinking, how are you going to teach AP in just like four units? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that part of that is like really the big ideas in the, themselves could be storylines. Mm -hmm. Like you could create a storyline around a big idea. And I know um, that there are several teachers who that's what they do. They, every quarter they, they do a, a big idea or they do a big question and then they work their way through that. Um, I do have a, as I've been playing with it this year, um, and both the storylining and doing a little bit of this in the AP realm, where I've been trying to come up with more, again, more of a narrative, as I, I have next to me, the the book that we got, the Sean Carroll book, The Story of mm -hmm. Life, uh, that we picked up at, at NABT. Um, I feel like all of these ideas are flowing in my head. Uh, it does, does still come back to something that I've struggled with as I've been putting in the storylines, which is um, assessment. And feedback of assessment um, and the timing and the time frame. So again, I, you you have amazing resources, and I have this. I have the disease unit up in front of me. But I will tell you, I'm looking at you know day 11, day 12, day 13, day 14, day 15 of the disease unit storyline in front of me because it happens to be on mm -hmm. my desktop. And as I look through this, I will tell you, I couldn't get through this in one week mm -hmm. with my students. Um, I have 45 minute periods. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to get through and I'm trying to figure out where to drop in assessments and how to assess in a way that, um, 
blends formative assessments and summative assessments to provide both feedbacks and the job that we have, which is we have to sort and rank kids and put grades on them in the end, regardless of how pointless that mm -hmm. sometimes feels. It is part of our job. So how, how does the assessment piece fit in and maybe the implementation work with teachers um, in these really varied groups with very different types of students and that sort of thing. How, what kind of feedback are you getting about, you know, assessment and pacing in yeah, the different pacing, areas? Pacing's all over the place because we all have, we all teach in different environments um, and we have different, you know, kids at different levels who have different experience with this type of learning and this type of learning, depending on where you put something, you know, my disease unit goes pretty much according to plan because I'm doing it mid-second semester. So the kids have had a lot of practice with this type of um, learning. Um, as far as assessment, mm -hmm. assessment's embedded within each of those activities. So I'm looking at what is the key question that is going to build the coherence between the lesson I'm doing and tomorrow and further. And so, and we just had this discussion actually with, with my own teachers in my own school is, you know, I, they can't possibly grade everything. There's so much explanation that's required by kids and written response. And, you know, that's, that, that's the nature of the beast. That's where we're going. But not having to grade every single thing, um, but looking for what is that one piece that will build the coherence, will get the kids to the understanding so that they're prepared and they see the reason for moving, transitioning to the next piece of the storyline. So it's really about looking at what you're doing today and then yesterday and tomorrow. And what is the informative assessment mm -hmm. piece that you need to pull out of that activity that they did that's then going to bridge? And often that's where my driving question of the day comes. Um, you know, I may have one big driving question for the storyline, but the, the supported driving questions that are lesson level um, come out of what they did yesterday and then... Um, you know, that's that's basically how I'm formatively assessing where they're at. Sometimes it's peer review within their groups. Uh, sometimes it's uh, me walking around and assessing the groups, um, you know, as they're working and seeing where everybody is. It could be that I visit each group and I ask them a key question. I ask, a, you know, one or two students in each group a key question so that they're answering it and the other kids are listening. Either way, they're getting what they need. Um, but I, I do vary that. I do vary how I'm doing it based on you know what kind of time I have, what the kids are actively doing, uh, what they're trying to figure out, um, and then bridge it to the next day so that that coherence is there. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm I'm looking at this curriculum in front of me here, I, what I see is you know um, I just was doing the meiosis pop beads mm -hmm. with my students. Um, um, because I have pop beads and I've, I've done that forever. And we just sort of went over the initial of sort of what does meiosis look like um, and asked the question, why don't Henrietta's children have the mm -hmm. have immortal cells? And we sort of got down to the idea of, you know, the formation of gametes and sort of how meiosis, how you model meiosis. And, and I think they got the idea of meiosis producing various mm -hmm. variations in gametes and then also how when those gametes come together, they form a new individual. So I think we kind of got that variation concept um, that's there. Uh, and then I see that you have got several embedded questions within here um, that are that are sort of, I would view as driving questions. You know, um, how can mutations be passed mm -hmm. on for future generations? How is meiosis different from mitosis? Which is actually what we'll be doing in our next class is looking at mitosis, meiosis. That will sort of be my driving question mm -hmm. um, at our next class. And then I mm -hmm. see a performance assessment um, where you say add a mutation to mitosis to show 
um, that Henrietta's mutation happens in tumor cells, not sex cells, where would you have this um, have it occur for her children mm -hmm. to inherit her cancer? And so this is now an interesting question to say, um, uh, then as the, the teacher, I need to make a decision. Is this a concept that I need to collect a piece of paper, collect a written assessment to provide them feedback at this point? Or do I need to have like a checklist where I'm checking in with individual kids? And, and this is sort of the, the art of teaching <laughs> where I, I yes. have to meet my yes. students where they are um, in that level. Yes. And, and, you know, and I often say this and some teachers love it and some teachers hate it. Um, you have to feel your way through. Yeah. Um, and, and whether they think they're doing that in the traditional classroom or not, we all know that we're, we're, we have to do that at times. Um, but you do have to feel your way through because you're on a journey with the kids and the, the kids are, you know, kind of, they they think they're leading the journey. You're really, you know, the man behind the curtain, mm -hmm. right? But, um, they think they're leading this journey. So you do have to feel your way through and, and say, you know, I really need this piece of evidence to make sure that they can perform on this thing in a couple of days. Um, and that's where you have to make your individual decisions. And it won't be the same for everybody. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm so against, you know, the, the scripted curriculum. And I know I, I just heard from one state, uh, teachers in one state that said that they have to do this prescriptive, this prescribed scripted curriculum that storylines. And I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it. But, um, you know, that that just sets a teacher up for failure. You know, I mean, you really need to be able to feel your way through and say, I need this piece of evidence um, because I can see where we're going to go in a few days. And I think this would be key for me to give them feedback by tomorrow and say, this is what's going. This, this is ideal. And, you know, it could be that you have a two page document that they answered questions, but you need to find that one question that you can formatively assess and use that to drive, um, you know, the discussion the following day or whatnot. Yeah, and I think that this is the the part where we're st like I think we're all sort of sort of struggling as classroom teachers because what we're doing right now is again we're we're creating a new system we're creating a system that we didn't go through because um, mm -hmm. well you know when I went when I took high school biology it was a lecture a couple of cookbook labs a quiz every other week a test uh, you know a week after that yes. um, <laughs> and that was the case and this doesn't feel or look anything like that and for a lot of good reasons. Um, at the same time, we're still in a system where we need to be able to provide feedback for, to students in a way that's meaningful for them. But the, the fact is they've been trained to go through the old system. Yeah. Uh, and I, when you said earlier that your honors kids are the ones who struggle the most with this, I think that's that's sort of a hard that's a hard shift for them that mm -hmm. you got to build a lot of community. You got to build a lot of trust. But at the same time, you also have to build skills for them. Uh, so that they can start to self-assess and advocate when they're getting things versus when they're not. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure when that happens. Um, and I don't know, I'm not satisfied with the, well, we're going to do this and we're going to gain practice and they're just going to get better at it. I do personally want to have, you know, sort of metacognition like baked into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And not just in my class, but in all classes so that they develop those academic skills. And I feel like, as you said, the eight years of just learning how to memorize and that's why they got sorted into the honors class. Mm -hmm. Now we're changing. We've changed the rules a little bit on them. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I worry about those advanced students for that reason. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's funny because the first few weeks they struggle. Um, but I do this right out of the gate. I mean, day one, they're seeing the first anchoring phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so 
they're, they, they start to see this as business as usual. But I also email all of them and the parents and say, you know, students will come home frustrated. They will want the answer. They will just want the answer. They will just want to be spoon fed. That's not how this class is going to go. And here's why. And I get very, very little pushback um, because I kind of set the stage and they know that this is what's best. We're doing what's best. And um, after the first, the midpoint assessment of the Africa storyline, um, the kids start to realize that they need to relax a bit and that it's not, this isn't some kind of scary unknown monster that's waiting to fail them. You know, um, what, what I often hear is um, from the kids is, oh, I, I didn't feel like I needed to study for this. And mm. that the old me, the traditional me would have taken offense to that. The new me says, yes, that's absolutely the way you should feel because you're applying exactly what you did in class to new contexts on the assessment to prove to me that you know how things work. That is a shift. And that's because we're doing, we're looking at the three dimensions and not just content and your ability to, you know, use a word. Um, that's a big shift. That was a hard shift for me. Um, and I remember Dr. Reiser during my training pointing at things when I'm, when I was putting together my first storyline saying, do the kids need to know this word? And I would say, yes. He goes, why? And man, I hated him for that. <laughs> I really hated him, for that. but he was right. Um, you know, and he's like, if this is going to derail their learning because they can't master vocabulary at this age, relax on it and get them to understand the process. You know, can they explain how the natural world works? And when I look at our science illiterate society, I, I look at a lot of people saying, this is why. Um, they, we, we, as teachers, we were focusing on the wrong things. And, and if these people had an experience where they were figuring things out from data and looking at evidence and citing evidence instead of being on social media and just sharing something because they like the headline, um, we would have a, we, I think we'd be in a very different, um, we'd be in a very different boat right now. Yeah. As you were, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, um, I had a moment earlier today as I was grading, um, because I'm always grading, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I was, I was looking over my CERs and, um, and I, you, what you said is like the old me would have been frustrated. Um, and I was realizing that the mistakes that they were making on the CER and it's, a uh, I, we're looking at fast plant, uh, inheritance patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there's a there's a big swath of my students who are using the terms genotype and phenotype interchangeably. Mm-hmm. They have phrases like "we observed the genotype." Yes, like they mm-hmm. they're saying those words, which means that they have not internalized the difference in those vocabulary terms, and they're using there. But we also just had a test where we were doing our heredity unit, and it was sort of your classic. Uh, the test was a big bell, like or it wasn't a big bell, rather it was a split bell. I had kids who totally got mm-hmm. it, and kids who totally didn't. And they were really spread out and some kids were caught up in jargon and some kids were like, I know how to do Punnett squares and they could just plug and chug. But when you gave them something abstract about it, they got, they got totally lost. And as I was reading this, I realized that the lens I was looking at these assessments were very formative, Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is where they are. This is, these are some things we need to fix and move forward. And I realized that all assessments sort of have become formative assessments Mm -hmm. for me. Most of Uh, them, most of them should be. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't think that when we devised these assessments originally, we viewed these as summative, mm-hmm. like they, they're coming these together. And so I, again, I'm going to come, I'm going to push back a little bit that I think that as teachers, we're starting to make this shift, but do students understand the difference between formative assessment 
and summative assessment. And I guess I, my question is for you is that has this shifted your grading practices? Do students have like redemption and revision? And are you a little bit more standards based going this way? Or have you wedged these into a traditional classroom? So I would I would say that where I am right now in my practice is uh, very much um, revision. Um, they they often I, I do a lot of my activities um, that they're doing in class as a controlled release of data. So they get one piece of data and they figure it out and they come to what they think are conclusions. And then I give them another piece of data that will shift their thinking. And then they'll have to say, well, with this, you know, this changed how I think, and this is why. So they're revising constantly to master, to master these things. Um, even when they're turning in summative, summative assessments, I may ask them a question about something that they put, and then they'll sit back down and they'll, they'll rework it to see if that makes more sense. Um, so that it's, it's a lot of revision. It's a lot of revision. Um, but it needs to be because that's the nature of science. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's the 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 other sort of pragmatic pushback I think in terms of of the storylines. I think we have a system of grading like mm-hmm. you know, we got these quarters and we got to put these grades in and um as I approach the, you know, the uh, you know, a grading mark where where I have interims and I look into my grade book and I go, "Gosh, do I have enough grades to provide feedback to do these interim reports?" Um I feel a little bit frustrated because to me, I I feel like we're in mid process and to sort of label the kids at this point is not always, it it feels a little unfair. Like I have some kids who are working really hard. They just struggled on this test. Do I send an interim report? Like, what do I do? Where are my metrics? And I had a kid ask me this just the other day and he was saying like, well, what's your, what's your standard for sending home interim reports? And I gave like the most like squishy answer back Mm -hmm. of it really depends on the person. Like, if you are doing everything you're supposed to do and I feel like everything's in line, but you had the one bad test and your grade is at this point, I'm probably not sending an interim. But if you've missed two homeworks and like you didn't revise your formative assessment for me and you didn't do this, then I'm probably going to send one because I think you're not as engaged and invested. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a very I, like he he said, oh, that's interesting, like which I think in teenage work means like you're just yeah. making this up as you go along, uh, <laughs> which is completely true. So uh yeah, I, I, I still don't, I feel like we're, as, as I said, we're, we're still wrapping our minds around this, but I also do wonder about the, the student lens on all this work, um, mm-hmm. be, because I do, I do question the fairness uh, to students about if they're being assessed, if, if I don't have a coherent message and, and idea, am I always being fair to them? Um, because to them, they still are doing school because they go to a school that is for, you know. 80% of their day, not like what I envision is perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're, we're, we're having, we're being forced to hybridize what our practice because we work in environments that are still somewhat traditional. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's just, that that's just what we have to do. But I think, do I have grades in my grade book? Of course I do. Do I grade the labs and things that they're turning in um, after they've had a chance to revise and, and, and things of that nature, of course I do. And there are grades in the grade book and, you know, everybody's, everybody's okay with that. Um, you know, I, I don't get any pushback that there's not enough grades in my grade book or anything like that, but I do want them to have a chance to um, rethink and revise their work so that they are better 
at that, you know, understanding that concept and using that practice um, than they were the day before. So yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be wrapping our heads around best practice when it comes to this stuff for a while. And that's because like you said, we're doing this, we're doing what we should be doing as far as the national framework, right. And, and NGSS with the three dimensions, but at the same time, we're in these, um, we're in a place where we need to educate our leaders so that they understand what we're trying to do. And that's exactly what I've done. I mean, I've dragged administrators into my classroom and said, this is what I'm doing. And I remember one of them saying, your kids are already doing this on day eight. And I said, yeah. And um, she's like, well, that's, that's incredible. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It's because I'm giving them the context. I mean, yes, they're doing math on day three and four of school in biology in meaningful ways and doing a performance assessment to show me how they're distributing their kilocalories among the group to hunt a bigger prey. I mean, if the context is strong and they know why they're doing what they're doing, the math is secondary. They don't, they don't hyper-focus on something like that. So, um, you know, I will give them points for that performance assessment if they can accurately show me why. Because even if a kid in that group is a little bit weaker than the other kids on it, once they do it, they all come to that understanding because they just witnessed it. I'm good with that. I, I'm okay with that. But it's different. It's yeah, different. And, <laughs> yeah, and you brought up, I mean, you bring an interesting point. You're bringing the administrators in, and the administrators are the leaders of the building. Um, so, like, my question is, how are they How are they facilitating helping teachers get to this place um, when they have to do so much management of the building? Um, well, and, and yeah, and, and that's a good point. And what we're seeing is teachers are advocating for themselves. Um, and I can't say I would have done much of that in my old school thinking. Um, but now that I see this new, this new version of, you know, this better version of myself as a teacher, I, I think that when, and when I go to schools um, to do professional development for their, for their science departments, I'm seeing more and more like, well, this teacher saw you present here and it's teacher driven. They're bringing, they're the ones that are the impetus for change. And so every teacher listening to this, I'm hoping is brave enough to be that, agent of change because that's where it comes from you cannot depend on school leadership to be that agent of change no matter how much we wish they would be okay that's uh, maybe that you you might just have given me the, that that might be the thing i remember from this call the best <laughs> <laughs> because it is a constant source of frustration for me um <laughs> yeah and, and honestly uh, about, i just showed about, them what my kids could do like they could never do this before yeah. you know and i, I just I remember looking at the Scantron forms from my final exam, you know, from years ago, and every year our team would get together, and every year all those little pink marks along the left column would be there, and all of those questions were photosynthesis and cell respiration. And it's like we keep doing the same things, thinking that we're going to get a different result. It's not going to happen. And now that we're doing, and, and this gets back to our vocabulary conversation earlier, now that we're doing it all in context, my kids know I mean, they just, they use these words because they know what they're doing because of the context and phenomena that we've presented to them. So when, you know, when I show them this flytrap uh, phenomenon to, to kick off our unit on Thursday, um, they were like, well, do they do photosynthesis? Are they, are they autotrophs or heterotrophs? You know, what, like, where do they fit on the pyramid, on the energy pyramid? You know, and, and why would they be doing, if they're doing both, why would they be doing both? Like, what kind of habitat do they live in? I mean... I'm looking, I posted these questions on Twitter because I'm like, this was from my struggling kids. These are the questions they came up and, and just about all of them will answer over the next week through the series of activities we're doing. So 
I know that, you know, my administrators can see like, yeah, you can't, you can't argue this. It's just, it makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, as promised, I got to what question two and we're <laughs> 40, 40 something minutes in. Um, but I'm going to, I do want to, I do want to shift gears a little bit. Cause I, and I think we've, we've teased into this a little bit. Um, but you talk, you've talked a few times about working with different groups and during, working with teachers and working with students. And I also know you work with college students. And so I am curious about, um, and I think I was alluding to this a little bit as I was thinking about what's fair to the different learners that you're working with. Are you seeing any common trends uh, to teaching science um, when you're working with students, with teachers, with college students, you know, at the different levels that you're working with? Are you seeing any um, common trends coming out or even possibly even common challenges that that different populations of learners are, are struggling with right now? Well, I think it gets to what we discussed earlier as far as um, fairness in that we're, we're in the middle of this fundamental shift in teaching, science teaching. And I think everybody's resistant to it. Not everybody. I think many people are <laughs> resistant to it. Um, we, got, we, have some, we have some, you know, phenomenal people who are just gung-ho because they see what their kids can do. Um, and when you are... When you're looking at these different groups, when I work with the high school kids versus my university students versus the teachers that I train, um, they all are nervous because we work within that system, right? We're working in an old system. We're doing something new in this old system. And so often what I hear from teachers is, well, kids can't. And sometimes it's they don't believe the kids can do it without them, right? And that's a hard pill to swallow for some teachers. Um, and I get that. Um, and they also think kids can't because we work in a system where we have to have grades and tests and all this, all this other stuff. Um, so we show teachers how, you know, how we do it and how it works within our system. And, um, but I, I do think it's that resistance to change. I mean, that's basically what it's about. And um, that, un, that unknowing, you know, not knowing where you're going to be going. Um, we've been trained to tell kids that we you know, like save kids. We need to stop saving kids. We need to let them wade through this stuff and struggle because the struggle does not mean you're failing. And that's, that's what we told. That's what our administrators um, often will use um, when they're, you know, evaluating us that, Oh, the kids were struggling. Well, I want them to say that because they should be struggling. If they're struggling, that means that they're doing what they should be doing. And so there's, you know, there's, there's that shift of struggle, you know, like, should the kids be struggling? Should the teachers be struggling? You know, is that a good thing? And I think that the, the word struggle is where that's at the crux of all three of these groups that I work with is, is struggling failing? And it's not, it shouldn't be. Yeah, it, it also, it reminds me of some of our conversations maybe five years ago where we talked about stress in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the word struggle and the word stress are sometimes used interchangeably and the same way, like chronic stress, bad, Yes. like chronic struggle with ne with never being able to being given the skills to work through that. That's not good either. Exactly. But uh, the other word that seems to be missing, and it sounds like uh, what I was hearing from you is, um, how much resilience do we have on every level? And a lot of times we talk about resilience from a student standpoint in my school. I wonder how much resilience the, the adults have to watch people struggle. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Whereas, <laughs> especially if you're from a system where like you came through a system where like, you know, you mentioned the Venus flytrap earlier, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, that question would come up and I'd say, oh yeah, they use that for nitrogen. I would just answer yes. it. Like I would just say, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have turned it around. I wouldn't have turned it around for all of those obvious mm -hmm. questions that you just said um, and engaged and, and built it out because I didn't feel like I had time. And um, we're not, we're not, we're, or, we're not trained to lead through questioning. That's where teachers struggle yeah. the most. And my pre-service teachers were practicing this week in my classroom. And, you know, one of them gave it away and the other one was like, no, no, don't say it. Don't say it. You know, so they, they, they're starting to see why we do what we do. And then the following class, when that person, when that teacher, pre-service teacher switched her language, she was like, wow, you know, like that just changed everything. So it, it does, it does make a difference, but you know, we need to see it. We need to see it in action and see how it works. Yeah. To quote Paul Anderson, don't, don't kill the wonder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we do that early on in their, in their experience, but I also work for a great minds and we're doing K five storylines right now um, as part of their work. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's the same thing. Like what, what interesting things can we do and get kids asking questions because we grade them on how to answer a question, but we never grade them on how to ask a question. And, you know, that's got to change. That has to change. Yeah. And as I, as I read my labs this morning, I can tell you, I have a group of ninth and 10th graders who don't yes. know how to ask questions. Yes. Um, <laughs> we beat that yeah. out of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now we got to rebuild them up yeah, from the ground up. So. All right. So um, in the in the upcoming years, um, I mean, I, we've just thrown a lot of different things out there. And I know you, you have some other storylines you're working on, but uh, what are you looking forward to in your classroom? Um, and I'm more focused on the high school classroom mm -hmm. than than with your pre-service teachers or your college students. But what are you looking forward to with their kids in, in the classroom? Um, I, I think piloting more of these storylines and looking at how they respond to the different phenomena that we are presenting to them is a thrill. I, I just get such a thrill out of that. And seeing the questions, you know, we lead every storyline with a driving question board. So the kids are writing questions right out of the gate without any explanation from me, without anything from me. It's just, we show them the phenomenon. They start writing questions. They share their questions with their group. So seeing those types of questions emerge from those those new phenomena that we're showing them um that's that's really exciting mm -hmm. and are you is it satisfying is it is it adequate for the kids that these are questions that may never be answered is that is that space okay yeah they, they seem they seem okay they they all know that we can't possibly do it all um and in in the uh, in the event that um you know, I have a higher level kid that really wants to know about a question they asked five weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about, well, did you look into it at all? Because I would love to see, you know, what you come up with. Um, but also, um, you know, like, well, do you think your question fits into the things that we did and why or why not? So just having that conversation with kids, I think is always fair. Um, but they know there's, they know we have limited time, you know, we're only going to be in the classroom for so long and we, there's stuff we just got to get. All right, cool. I think that's been one of the frustrations I've had as I've been moving to the asking questions. I do feel like I have this like overhang that's at the beginning where I generated all these questions, but then I didn't come back to get to enough of them. Or in some cases, I feel like they just they're just out there. Yeah. And, um, but but answering the questions that you did is is absolutely amazing um, compared to what we used to do, you know. And and there's even times where when I discuss the driving question board with the kids. 
I'll say, you know, this question, I think we're going to answer this question. Um, wait, wait till you see what we have planned for this, you know, or, or something like that. So I'll actually highlight some of the questions that I know that we will answer. And I usually cluster them around a theme. So if a kid asks a question that's not going to get answered explicitly, it may be grouped with other questions that are um, in some way. So mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes that helps, but you know, you're, you're dealing with, I'm, I'm dealing with over a hundred kids a day. So yeah. I'm going to have questions that aren't going to get answered. <laughs> yeah. All right. So before we get to questions for me and picks of the episode, uh, what do you do? I don't know how you could do anything when you're not uh, doing your eight jobs that you do. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but uh, when you're not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Um, yeah, I, I work a lot. <laughs> um, I like to sleep now and then. That's, that's always helpful. Um, I, I do travel a lot. Um, so I'm traveling a lot to do PD. But every time I do um, something on business, I make sure that I do something else there. Um, I did this amazing um, training in Cheyenne, Wyoming for their science teachers. And so I went to, uh, I flew into Denver and went to Rocky Mountain National Park and saw the elk and everything. I mean, just amazing. So I always, I'm always capitalizing on my travel as best I can um, because I just like to see, see new things. yeah. Outside of that, it's, it's a lot of work and visiting zoos and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's about the extent of it at this point. <laughs> well, it's, it's not like, you know, you're just, you know, I don't know, like counting widgets on a, an assembly line or anything. You have a very diverse, <laughs> you have a very diverse work group that you, that you have, yes. you have a lot of variability day to day. So, um, well, I, and you're only as good as the people that you work with. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible to see what these teachers who have, you know, some of which who have had no experience with this, uh, what they can come up with when they're just working with these other teachers. It's, it's incredible. It's great. Yeah. And also just given that rare, quiet, reflective time, um, Mm -hmm. I feel like so much of what we do on a day-to-day basis in our school is dictated by this, like, and you know, I'm in my school, it's uh, this year we're in 45 minute periods. It's going to change next year. But I, I just feel like there's this constant churn of, of daily tasks we have to get through and manage yes. and do that sort of thing. <laughs> and I would love nothing more than to sit down and, and think big idea curriculum and, and that sort of thing. And I think for, for providing the space for teachers to do that and to collaborate um, really can, can help invigorate practice. Yes. And, well, and, and it gets you, it yeah. gets you thinking outside the box um, because mm-hmm. when you're inside the box, which is your classroom, you're, you're very limited. But as soon as you start talking to others um, and hearing from others, sometimes it's just a matter of um, boosting your morale or mm-hmm. um, giving you the courage to take a risk because you're hearing it, you're hearing what works for other people. And then you have evidence that this could work for you. Right. So um, sometimes that's where, you know, that's where teachers are coming in. We have teachers on the work group who are the only science teacher in their building. And so they just are, they're clamoring for um, this, this collaborative process. Um, you know, so it, it definitely helps people for different reasons. But all I wanted to do was I wanted to offer up the space, you know, the safe space so that they could come in and, and actually, um, you know, do do stuff, you know, work through stuff and, and create um, amazing stuff for kids. Wow. That's great. Um, 
All right. So before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? So what what do you think um, your kids will remember most from you as a teacher this year? Oh, what are they going to remember most from me? Um, that's a good question. And I so I have different populations of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will give you the answer that I get from kids that um, – that I get and I get it from when they come back to mm-hmm. um, both in the school and after they've had me and they've gone away um, that I'm pretty excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that's the word that I, that's the word that I get the most that like, I'm excited to try things. I'm excited to do things. I'm excited about the labs. I'm expi- excited about the topics. Um, I think they're going to remember sort of my energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I have a blend of, I try to set a pretty low key like atmosphere in the classroom mm-hmm. where I'm fairly casual. I fair, I fairly laid back that sort of stuff, but I can't be casual when it comes to the biology that we're doing. Like I get excited yeah. about yep. talking about things and I get excited about hearing the kids generate questions in an AP lab or design a follow-up investigation or, um, you know, when we're working and they're working with models in honors or you're working with models in my, my map class. I'm just having these flashbacks from the last week. Um, I'm excited about the work that we're doing. Um, and I, I hear that come back yeah. <laughs> from my former students. Um, I've had other teachers tell me that about me. So I think they're going to remember sort of my general energy mm-hmm. uh, more so than anything else, uh, more so than any of the words or the units or the tests or the labs yeah, or any of that exactly. stuff. Exactly. The, or maybe they'll remember the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? <laughs> uh, they, they, always they all seem to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Though. And every time I hear it, I, I can visualize Lee Ferguson's yes, head exploding. Exactly. So, um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No. And and again, it's. I think the other way that I see that is, um, I get ex- like I get more amped up. I'm, I'm sure you're the same way. Like when you're doing a new lab or a lab mm-hmm. that you're excited about, I get a little more amped up about sure. trying something, um, something especially something that I don't know if it's going to work, um, which I think is a. Like that, I think has always sort of set me aside from some of the other teachers I've worked with. Like when we talk about labs and labs we want to do, I've always been more excited about doing a lab that has a really good chance of failing spectacularly. Um, like, like, like it's almost like I'm not much of. I, but I'm not like, I don't like roller coasters. I don't like to ride mm-hmm. my bike fast. I don't like to do any of that, but you give me a chance that the PCR yeah. is not going to work. And I'm totally right. on board for that. Like, let's try and do this thing. That's no one's ever done before. I don't know if we can make it happen. Let's do our best and see if we can make it happen. I get excited about that. And so when those things work, I think probably my reaction is you know, sort of fits that same mold of me being super, super excited about mm-hmm. that thing. Um, and as a result of that excitement, I think that sort of was what translates to the kids coming back and talking to me and, and the things that they remember, um, about, about the classroom. So, um, yeah, I got to keep myself, I got to keep myself excited. I mean, even when I was in the traditional classroom, I was still, um, or sorry, I'm I'm still in a traditional classroom. When I was teaching traditionally, (laughs) um, I was still excited by these new activities, these new things we were going to have kids do because I'm it's an experiment. I will, I, I'm ex, I, you know, I get excited to see, to test things and see if they work or not and identify the variable that didn't work. I mean, that's, that should, that should come with the territory, but 
you know, a lot of teachers have that fear, you know, and um, I think it's great that you don't, you know, you're, you embrace that, um, you embrace that unknowing, unknowingness. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I almost like I I think I probably have the I like sometimes we should be doing things that that are going to work a little bit better, especially like baseline labs and that sort of stuff. And that that's the kind of thing where I'm teaching materials and methods I do want to see it work, but those follow-up mm-hmm. labs, those follow-up investigations, I think that's that's where the learning happens. Like, you know, yes. I was joking our kids do a a long-term projects in both quarter 2 and quarter 3, and in quarter 2, we pretty much give them a setup and say we want you to test and we put them in six different groups and it's independent so they have to come back and do some work, but they have to measure some change. And so they have to set up a baseline lab and then add one variable to something. So we have like a, an algae population growth where they add fertilizer. We have a salt toxicity where they grow grass seed with and without salt. So they have a control and they add one and they have to have um, like repeats. So they have to have at least six replicates so that we can teach them a little statistics after that. But mm-hmm. they can't like they fail. And I tell them this. I'm like, I'm going to show you how to do this and you're going to set it up. And two weeks from now, you're going to be looking at your data and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. And you're going to need to set it up again. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. And and they're like, and I'm like, and it's going to be super frustrating because this is going to look super simple. And I'm going to show you exactly how to do it. And you're not going to do it. And you're going to realize that plants need water to grow. Yeah. And <laughs> if you don't water them, they die. And then the experiment doesn't work. And, and I had a group on Friday who I was just saying that to, I was like, is like, you learn these amazing things that you would never learn. Otherwise, like plants need water or they don't grow. (laughs) And if you do everything for them on the lab, you don't even know the things that they're not learning. Right. And so that's the exciting part about doing science is, is the, the, the learning comes from the quote unquote failure, um, you know. I, I learned so much when labs don't work. Um, I just mm-hmm. wish sometimes that we had a little bit more time to dive deeper into that, those failures and really to flush out. And I understand the frustration other teachers have because we don't really have the time. You have to move on to the next topic. And, and that is frustrating when you spend a lot of time and energy and sometimes money running a lab and it doesn't work and you just have to move on. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I probably create more space for that than the average teacher, but at the same time, I still have to move on. And I, I just had to do that last couple of weeks. We were working on a project and I just had to tell my students, they're like, are we gonna come back to this? And I was like, as much as I want to, I don't think we're gonna be able to do this until maybe AP after the AP in May, we may try to come back to it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's frustrating. Sure. So. Yeah. yeah. Part of the process, though. <laughs> it, it, it is part of the, yeah. I mean, we have to make these trade-offs. So, all right. So we are at picks of the week. And, and Jason, you have a pick that ties heavily into your homeostasis timeline or storyline, sorry. Uh, so so what is your pick of the episode? So um, just to give a little bit of context, the homeostasis storyline uh, starts with the disappearing sea otter. We show part of the clip of HHMI biointeractives. Uh, some animals are more equal than others. And just, just to present the idea that there is a, there's an issue, there's a problem, right? Disappearing sea otter. Um, and then they progressed through, and our goal for the storyline was to go through and to see how, how homeostasis, um, what homeostasis looks like at every hierarchical level of life. So we start with the ecosystem, and, you know, we move down to keystone species and communities and, and things like that, all the way down to cells and diffusion um, and, and things of that nature. And... One of the last things we do to tie things together is we talk about uh, the mammalian diving response. And we have kids even put their face in water and monitor their heart rates and things like that because it's something that's very simple to do. 
Um, and uh, one of the one of the things they get that opens this up is some data from the actual papers um, that look at different divers, and um, it compares like their hemoglobin uh, levels, their myoglobin levels, their uh, stored oxygen stores, uh, things like that. Because we're driving kids to understand how the body balances the O2 and CO2, and um, maintains homeostasis in these different animals that can dive really, really deep. And so the, there's unknown data for the beak whale in, in this data set. And so the kids go through it and they have to make predictions about what do you think it is based on, you know, using proportion and, and things like that. How, how can you figure out what you think it could be based on the data that exists? And then we show them, uh, we give them this article that we found on the BBC um, that talks about um, the beak whale uh, specifically. And um, I, I just found it. It's uh, from 2015, uh, so it's fairly recent. And um, it's uh, it talks about um, the study that was published, and it has this amazing infographic that shows that the uh, beaked whale is the deepest diver uh, when you're comparing all these different uh, marine mammals. It's phenomenal, um, and I share this link with parents when um, I try to email the parents every couple of weeks and talk about what their kids are doing in class, and then we send them something exciting like this, and parents love it, and it gets them to buy in, you know, just as much as their kids. Well, maybe sometimes a lot more than their kids, uh, depending, on, depending on where they're at, but um, this is something that um, then the kids can go back and say, you know, well, where was my prediction, and, and um they can compare it to the, the, the new data um, and see, you know, that science is about discovery. Neat. Neat. I found a few different articles, but we'll definitely put one in the show notes. Uh, yep. uh, so if people want to check that out and I imagine you'll be adding this into your homeostasis storyline resources uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I, again, I can sort of see the, the order of things where if you've already done you know, photosynthesis and cell respiration that's come up in earlier storylines, that homeostasis component is now a bringing back concepts earlier about matter that came up earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't done it and you do the homeostasis storyline earlier, then when you get to those later on, that's the touchstone that you're coming back, sort of that spiraling curriculum idea that you get through storylines. Right. Yeah, I have to spend a lot less time on these individual concepts because the kids just get them much faster when it's in context. So that contextual learning is everything. It really, it really makes a big difference. But to adapt your knowledge um, in, with this with a new with this new phenomenon, um, it's 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 amazing to listen to the kids' conversations. It's it's really inspiring. <laughs> they inspire me. Great. Great. All right. So my pick, and believe it or not, I actually had this pick before I realized uh, that I was going to be talking to you, Illinois teacher. Uh, but I decided my pick was going to be the the Fanny Fund or the Pafani Fund, if you will. Um, you know, it was about this time last year that uh, that I interviewed Jen Fannersill, um, who you know we unfortunately lost to cancer um, at the end of last school year, and um, and the the great people um, at NABT have put together. A, a fund to help um, people travel to the NABT conference uh, to learn. Um, and so uh, this specifically, the NABT Board of Directors established a scholarship this, this past year in September 2018 to honor the memory of Jen Fannersill. Um, Jen loved to create novel opportunities for faculty from four-year colleges, two-year colleges in high school to learn from one another. Um, 
And in the spirit of that, NABT has established this uh, Jen Fennersill Le- uh, Legacy Fund to provide travel scholarships for first-time participants to attend the NABT conference. Um, so I think that it would be a, a great idea if you're somebody who uh, has been to NABT and loves it and would love to see uh, new teachers or people experience that for the first time, uh, you know, chip in a couple bucks. So that would be a great way of doing it. Um, similarly, if you're someone like myself, and I, I know that Jason, <laughs> you, you've had many experiences with, with Jen, mm-hmm. um, uh, over the years, uh, if you know, at this time of year, it, it's hard. I'm gonna pretty much, I think, always think about Jen in December, and I'm always gonna think or think about her when I go to the AP read, um, along with being at an ABT. I think these are just she's gonna be present in the memory for a long time. Um, this is a, a nice way to to honor her memory and and to help her legacy uh, continue on. So um, that's my pick of the episode. Um, I think starting off 2019 by a little donation to the Fanny Fund is a nice way to start off the year um, on the right foot. Absolutely. Thank you for thinking. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine how. I, I mean, I uh, how it's been in Illinois. I, I, you know how big a impact she had on on me. And like we don't, I didn't go to regular meetings with her all the time because you know we're in a different part of the country. But I, I imagine she had a pretty large footprint uh, locally. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without question. Yeah. Yeah. It. it yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was a shock. It was. Uh, it's. It's been a shock to the system. That's. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I had conversations with people at NABT and it was like, you know, we're talking many months afterwards. Uh, I think it sort of just speaks mm-hmm. to the, the uh, how amazing Jan was that it's it still kind of feels shocking. I mean, here it is, you know, it's months later and it still is a very shocking, emotional thing to talk about um, because. Uh, yeah, I mean, her, her personality was just such a fixture in so many places, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's. um and we're going to be feeling that we're going to be feeling that voice for a long time. Yeah. And so the best, the best thing I think I can, I can think of is to, you know, wherever possible honor her, um, in, in small ways. Cause I think that's going to be the best, the best way we can do it for the biology community. She gave so much to the community, uh, keep that legacy going. Um, I know that, um, I, the reason I applied to be an AP reader was because of Jen. I mean, that's just, there, there's nothing, no other way to say it. Uh, she basically convinced me that I had to do it. And I know that there are a lot of other teachers who are in the same boat. Um, and you know, I, it's, it's hard to imagine that, um, that next year, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to go again this year, uh, she won't be there. It's It's, that's hard to imagine. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, on that note, um, I hope everybody does have a good start to 2019. Um, if you, uh, listen to this, please subscribe to life of the school, um, on your podcast player of choice. Um, some people, uh, everybody sort of seems to have a different one. I tend to use stitcher as my uh, pod catcher. Um, I know that iPhones have a, a podcast player right on it. You can find podcasts right on your iPhone. Um, and I know that uh, if you use a, a Google phone or an Android phone, they have pod players. Um, there's also there's a whole bunch of them. So if you have one, uh, that's great. If you want ideas for other podcasts to follow, feel free to message me anytime because um, <laughs> I, I listen to about 40 of them on a regular basis. Uh, but uh, subscribe subscriptions help. And as I said, I've noticed my numbers have gone way, way up. Um, and that actually gives me a little bit of a platform and a voice. So um, it's helpful for people to subscribe and boost those numbers. So thank you to everyone who has. And for those you haven't, um, if you'd consider it, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Uh, people can also um, support me by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, and Patreons do get an early release of my episodes. I try to get it out a few days in advance for them. Um, I also will post show notes there. I also post show notes on lifeofthe-school.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, I post episodes both there. You can follow Jason. Jason, what's your Twitter handle? 
Dr. Crean, D-R-C-R-E-A-N. All right. And I will put that in the show notes as well for everybody. So uh, Jason, thank you for joining me and I'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you.